The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Uh, what's up, church? How's everybody doing? We have a group presentation during the sermon today. While I preach, they're going to do interpretive dance behind me. All of them help you guys understand the sermon a little bit better. No, this is uh, this is a great Sunday, man. This is Baby Dedication Sunday. Um, I'm going to introduce these guys to you, and I'm going to tell you about what these guys have done, what they are doing this morning, and why this is a big deal and a really cool thing. So let's start with Lisette Aguirre. Everybody, give it up for Lisette here. And this is this is Emmanuel who is 22 months old. What's up, dude? Do you knuckles? Do you do knuckles? No? All right. I'm not cool enough yet. So uh, Lisette is a technician for an ophthalmologist at Cataract and Laser. Loves being outdoors, spending time with her parents and sisters, and they just started attending Heritage and are looking to get more involved and meet more people so that they can grow in their walk with the Lord. We can probably figure that out. Amen, church? Good to have you. Good to have you. Good to have you. Um, also a little newer, we have Levi and Cassie Daly, um, and this is Hartley, who is two years old, this Hartley up here, and then three months old is Holden. Let's give it up for them. <clears throat> Levi, Levi is a chief technology officer at a tech company based out of Portland. Cassie is a stay-at-home mom. She has the harder job. Um, they love to hang out, spend quality time together. They just moved back to the valley just a few weeks ago to be closer to family and friends after living in Portland for, in Portland for seven or eight years. Good to have you guys back. God bless. Yeah. Let's move on. I know these guys really well. Man, I've been connected to you, Matt, for what, 15 years or something like that before, man? A long time ago. Um, I don't know what you're still doing here. Um, this is uh, Matthew and Aaron Floyd. Uh, Matthew and Aaron are dedicating, having dedicated Judah Matthew, who is six months old. Let's give it up for them. Uh, Matthew is an engineer over at Erickson Air Crane here in town. Aaron, also a tough job, stay-at-home mom. And they enjoy reading, cooking, spending time together, as well as playing on the floor with Judah, doing laundry, and taking naps. Now, question, <laughs> doing laundry is a hobby. I just want you to know, as a pastor who desires to serve you, I would like to support your hobby with my household anytime you like. You guys just, just let us know. Let's give it up to the Floyds there, amen? All right. Here we have Michael and Fatima Grigoritz. Did I say that right? Grigoritz? You're, you're giving me the close enough look. Like, what is it really? I was right? Oh, okay. Awesome. And this is Adriel. Is that right? Adriel, eight-month-old and wins the Sharpest Dresser Award for baby dedication for this week. Like, look at that dude, right? <laughs> um, Michael attends college and plans to pursue employment in a health-related field. And Fatima is a medical lab technologist with Hematology Oncology Associates of Medford. That's a tough job. That's a tough job. I mean, God give you grace in that. Um, family hobbies, they enjoy travel, enjoying God's creation, photography, video production, spending time with family. They are also somewhat new to Medford, moving here from California. It's great to have you as part of the body here. Just thank you guys for coming. Ah, oh, it's my dear friend. You guys, if you have, if you don't follow this gal on Instagram, her baby has taken over the Instagram. Look at this eyes. Cutest kid on the planet. This is Andrea Marshall and Lila Mae Marshall, six months old. Let's give it up for them. <clears throat> Andrea works at America's Best Kids, and they love taking walks, reading, and they're doing a mommy and me swim class. They have a pool at their house, and we're hoping Andrea will get out of the water wings soon, and we'll be able to swim on her own so that she can swim with her baby. So we're praying for that. Let's give it up again for Andrea. 
And then finally, we have Corey and Daisha O'Neill, and this is Brecken, one year old. What's up, dude? Oh, I don't know, man. These shoes, you might be challenging the bow tie over there. You're, you're right there. You're right there close. Um, Corey is a chiropractor, owner of Pro Spine and Sport. Literally right before this service, someone told me you're the best chiropractor in the entire valley, so free plug. There you go. Um, and then Daisha is a stay-at-home mom. They love to travel, go camping, hang out with friends and family, and are really, they say, are really excited to be part of this family. So let's give it up for the O'Neills. Awesome. I feel like I'm hosting a game show right now. Um, so here, here's why we're doing this. Here's, here's what they are. This is, this is much more than they just show up one Sunday and hold up their baby and we just pray and everything's good. Like, th these guys have really committed to doing something significant and difficult. This is part of our Heritage Milestones program, which is, is trying to give people in the church a vision for their family from birth to graduation, and understanding that the role of the church is to equip families to do the work of the ministry. So it's not the church's job to raise Christian children, it's mom and dad's job to raise Christian children, and, and the church's job is to come alongside that and do whatever we can to support and help with that. And so so they have actually spent a couple of weeks ago, a Saturday morning with Pastor Brent, walking through what that looks like, what it means to be a parent and raise God's children. Um, and they have all, they're all here this morning, not just to have a special sentimental moment with their child and with their church family, but they're actually making a commitment here to you and really to God in our presence this morning. And so here's the commitments that each of these families are making. Number one, they're choosing this day to live with the command of God on their hearts. Number two, they will accept responsibility to be the child's primary faith trainer and impress the truth and love of God on the heart of their child. Number three, that they will love their child with the unconditional love of Christ. And number four, that they will pray for their child to know Jesus as Christ, and Lord, as Christ Lord and Savior. So, so we have um, spent some time, Pastor Brent has spent some time with them planning that, talking about that, understanding that. They've picked prayer partners to kind of come alongside them in life. They've written dedication letters to their children, really making this a significant and special event that's just the start of what it's like. So we're committing the children to God for sure. But what we're doing even more than anything is we're committing these parents to God, that God would grace them with wisdom and discernment in this particular job. And the church family is here part of this too, this audience participation. Like this is our family. And so we're committing to lift these guys up. Those of you that have raised children, you know the challenges that lay ahead. And, and it, it's just a significant and massive responsibility. So, so we're here to pray with them both now and down the road as their church family that these children would just grow in the grace and mercy of Jesus. So let's do that right now. Will you guys just join me in prayer? And some of you, if you will, just extend a hand of prayer out to them that we might just pray blessing on their lives. Father, we thank you so much for the gift, and it is a gift to be a parent. Just looking at these beautiful kids, Lord, just they bring so much joy into our lives. They bring fulfillment into our lives. They bring blessing into our lives. But there's also challenges, significant ones that come with it. There's anxieties and worries and fears. And God, we are just here to first and foremost turn our eyes on you. There is nothing, Lord, that humbles us so much and shows us our need for you as raising your children, but by your grace, there's nothing that shows us the unconditional love you have for us like raising our own children. 
So I pray first and foremost, Lord, for the parents represented here, that you would grace them, Lord, that they would just be so aware of your love and goodness and kindness to a degree that has never happened before in their lives. That they might, each day, as they love their child, understand the love that you have for them. And that that might be the motivation and fuel that allows them, Lord, to love their children the way they need to. I pray, God, your spirit would come upon them for this specific task of raising your kids. I pray, God, you would bless them, Lord, with grace and mercy and wisdom and discernment. And, Lord, for the children, we pray that you would just protect them. Lord, there's so many things in this world that seek to not just derail our children, not just trick our children, but to destroy them. So, Father, may you protect them. May your angels guard them. We don't ask, Lord, that you take our kids away from difficulty, but we do ask that you would guide them through it, that they might grow and learn. And we pray, God, for each one of these children from the earliest possible moment that may they call out your name as Savior, God, and King. And I pray, Lord, that you would just bless the relationships here between parent and child, Lord, with trust and understanding and love. And that these families, Lord, would grow to be ever brighter beacons of light to you and your kingdom. And Lord, as your church, may you continue to guide your church. May you continue to equip your church and show us, Lord, how we can best come alongside these families and others to prepare our kids for the things that are there. And I pray, Lord, all of these things will be done for your glory that we might further your gospel. So Lord, out of this group here, may there be many gospel preachers in all sorts of walks of life. May your glory shine and your gospel go forth because of the people on this stage. That is our prayer. And so we ask these things, Lord, according to your word and in your son's precious name, in the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's give it up. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys. Y'all are good to go. Thank you. The rest of you, if you would grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 3, and then I have a couple of announcements for you. Really just one. Uh, Daylight savings time is next Sunday. Um, and this is the good one. So next Sunday, we get an extra hour sleep. Amen? You guys are 1030. You're like, we're always rested when we wake up. The 830 service was like, yes! <laughs> but remember, fallback is next week. Most of you probably do phones now anyway, so it doesn't even matter. But, but Daylight Savings is next week. There's a lot of other announcements going on. Make sure you check the bulletin that was given you when you come in. Um, today we are continuing now in the book of Luke. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 3 and the preaching of John the Baptist. And in honor of God's word, if you guys would, will you just join me on your feet as we read the word of God together this morning? Luke chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 22 this morning. By the way, family members of those who are here visiting, it's great to have you guys. Thanks for joining us this morning. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of those regions, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expression and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We worship you for the gift of having your word in front of us. And now, Lord, we ask that your spirit would teach us and grant us understanding and application of these things. That we wouldn't just read it or wouldn't just study it and then it have no place really in our lives. But, but Father, may you prepare our soul now and may your spirit teach and awaken our minds, heart, spirit, soul to understand these things that we might produce fruit, that our lives might be different having learned these things than before. So we pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. So we're getting into public ministry time now. We've done the birth narratives. We've covered all this stuff through Luke 1 and 2. Now we're in Luke chapter 3, moving into some of the actual ministry stories, the actual uh, public ministry of Jesus, of John the Baptist, and likewise. Now you'll remember John the Baptist, who we learned about his his, uh, uh, predicted birth and his role. He is the prophet whose job was to come before Jesus and prepare the way for him. 
And so today we're going to be focusing more specifically on John the Baptist and his teaching as he actually accomplishes that work. Um, Towards the end of the passage, we see Jesus comes on the scene. His public ministry starts then. And in the future, from that point on moving forward, what we're going to end up looking at almost primarily is this ministry of Jesus Christ. And there's one thing that's going to be common that's going to happen over and over and over um, regarding what Jesus's early ministry looked like. And that common thing is crowds. Jesus draws crowds. As he goes and teaches, as he does miracles, as he does all these different things, people are drawn to him and people come to hear what Jesus has to say. People come to see what Jesus is going to do. People come to be healed. People come to repent. There's all sorts of reasons people come, but there are definitely crowds that come. I mean, you guys know the one story, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Most historians actually believe at that time, if they were doing counts, they really only counted men. They were counting heads of households, if you will, in a gathering like that. And so if that's true, then it would be true that as many as 20,000 people came to this field on the side of the Sea of Galilee to hear Jesus. 20,000 people. That's a huge crowd. We see one time there's a crowd so big while Jesus is teaching that they come alongside and they're trying to actually force Jesus to be king. Like there's just this this movement that's happening amongst all of these people and he escapes out of that. As you guys know, by Passion Week, as he makes his way into Jerusalem, it says the city came out to greet him. This crowd of people comes out and they're all making their way into the city and they're shouting, Hosanna, save us. In other words, this is our king. This is the Messiah. This is the one who we're going to follow. There are crowds following Jesus. But here's the peculiar part. Luke wrote Luke and Acts. And we're reading through Luke, and we see all these crowds, and we see this stuff at the triumphant entry right before. We see all this stuff happen, and then Acts kicks off, and there's no more crowds. There's 100 and 120 people, and that's it. Where'd they go? What happened to all those people? I mean, crowds, 20,000 people in just one spot, and now there's 120. Where did they go? What happened? That's peculiar. It's normal, though. In fact, it should be expected. But still, it should hit us a little bit different. I mean, think about it. Here they are on Monday. He's our king. Hosanna, save. And then by Friday, we have no other king but Caesar. Crucify him. How does that happen? What is that? Because here's the funny thing. In the crowds, when Jesus taught, there's things that you can see. There seems to be an actual, genuine level of, well, repentance in Jesus' teaching. And there seems to be um, sort of this actual, genuine love for Christ. I mean, my goodness, they want to make him king. They're hearing the message of the kingdom. They're hearing all these things, sometimes even hard teachings. And these people are like, yes, we want this. We love him. This is our guy. So that's peculiar. Crowds of people who seem to be demonstrating genuine love for Christ and repentance, and then gone. And 120 people later. Now, Jesus knew this was going to come. In fact, he predicted it. Before we get into Luke chapter 3, I'm going to use a teaching of Jesus to kind of set the stage for what John the Baptist is even talking about here. Jesus does a teaching in front of a crowd that we're pretty familiar with if we grew up in any form of Sunday school whatsoever. It's called the parable of the sower. And in Matthew chapter 13, it says this, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. 
And a great crowd, see, not lying, crowds, great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. So many people pushing against him on the shore that he can't even deal with it, gets in a boat and just pushes right off shore. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So he does this teaching. Now think about this. He's on a boat crowd, great crowd of people comes to hear him and he goes, so this guy was throwing seed and some seed went here and here's what happened and some seed went here and here's what happened and some seed went here and here's what happened and some seed went here and here's what happened. If you have ears, listen, pay attention to that. Let's pray. So the disciples are completely confused. They have no idea what's going on. It says, as the text goes on that they pull them aside and they're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? No one knows what you're, we're your disciples, we don't know what you're talking about, and no one plants that way, just throwing seed all over the place, like, I don't understand, what is all that? So Jesus sits the boys down, and he says, beginning in verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. He says, guys, listen, this preaching thing I'm doing, crowds are coming. A lot of people are hearing us, but you need to understand something. You need to know something about the crowds that are coming and about what the reaction of the people hearing this is going to be like. First of all, there's going to be some people, they're going to hear what I say and they're not going to do anything with it. They're not going to understand it. They're not going to pursue it. They're not going to be interested in it. They don't want anything to do with it. They're going to just let it go and they're going to walk away. That's like seed that falls on concrete. It never had a chance. And then there's going to be other people, verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. He says, guys, listen, Peter, Peter, pay attention, Peter. Okay, listen, here's what's going to happen. There's some people that they're going to receive it and they're in. They're going to hear the word of the kingdom. They're going to, I want that. That sounds amazing. That's what I need in my life. I want this. I'm in. They're fiery. They're excited. Um, Church people, this is the last night of church camp. This is the fire, and the music's playing, and everyone comes down front with tears in their eyes, and everyone, people that were fighting all week, kids fighting all week, they're just arms around each other now, weeping. Oh, I will never sin again. I'm going to follow Jesus every day for the rest of my life. I will never do anything wrong. I am sold out for Jesus. Hallelujah. Then they go home. And they're like, I'm I'm living for Jesus, I'm living for Jesus, I'm living for Jesus. Get to school and friends are around him. And they start realizing, ooh, it's kind of hard to live for Jesus when I'm around other people. And then maybe they get made fun of. What'd you do, go get religion? What are you all, churchy? Like, what's the matter with you? 
you threw away your Metallica CD and you're listening to that? What is wrong with you? All those things start to happen. Metallica's old now. I'm not supposed to use them anymore. Whatever. So am I. Um, But it starts getting hard. And so suddenly all that fervor and all that excitement you had when you were surrounded by people at church camp, now you're sort of on your own here and it's a little bit difficult and the heat starts getting turned up and it becomes real easy to go, well, I mean, I mean, I didn't mean all the time. I mean, I'll go to church Sunday, but come on, it's Friday. We'll be all right. And things just go back to normal. Verse 22, there's another kind. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So this is the person that says, I'm in. I'll take this. I love you, Jesus. I love all this stuff. I love the message. I want this. Thing is, though, my life's really complicated. I got a lot of things going on, so I'm going to structure it in a way that works for me, if that's okay with you. Um, I'm in, but I'm going to set the terms. Jesus doesn't really let us do that. And that'd be like one of our children going, hey, I'm totally down to be a Hensley. Here's how this is going to go down. And just laying out, like, this is going to be the terms. This is what life's going to look like for me to be part of the Hensley family. And we're like, well, you may have noticed we have ping pong paddles and no ping pong table. (laughs) Guess why? (laughs) But there are those that are like, I'm in. I believe. I love this. But I mean, he's not like Lord over everything. I mean, it's a busy life. I got business, I got money, I got decisions, I got cares, I got joys, I got a vacation, I got, and all sorts of other things come. And things just keep trumping Jesus. They just keep taking precedence over, over and over and over until the next thing you know, Jesus is just completely squeezed out of your life altogether. Remember, he's telling the apostles, 20,000 people might come to hear us, but remember, all these people are in the crowd. And then he gets to the last one, verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now, this is the one who received it. This is real. I love Jesus. I'm not a faker like all those other people. I wasn't just caught up in the moment. I'm real. Now let me ask you, and don't raise your hands. Which one are you? I don't think anyone in here is going to be like, I'm B. I mean, I'm in today, but I know school's going to be rough this week, so I am in today, but I'm going to bow out for a few days just to let you guys know. Not too many of you are going to go, I'm C. You might live that way. You're not going to vote that. You know what I mean? All of us would say, especially those who have been walking with Jesus for any length of time, we would say, no, option D, please. That's me. I'm the real deal. Here's the thing. How do you know? How do you know? Because here's the reality. In each of those cases, the thing that showed who was real and who wasn't was fruit that came later. Right now, we just have today. And and I know you can say, it doesn't matter. I would never walk away. I am sincere. I'm going to follow Jesus to the end. But do you know how many people have said that with sincerity? And then either pressures of life or tragedy or busyness or whatever comes. And the next thing you know, a year or two down the road, there's no connection with God whatsoever. And I believe the word would say that we never really even fully had him to begin with. It's actually, Jesus says in this story, it's the fruit that proves the difference between what was real 
and what never really had a chance at lasting. And in this case, everyone is sincere. In that moment, everyone's saying, I'm in. I believe. I'll buy it. Jesus is my Savior. I'm in. But it's down the road that shows. Now, this is hard to think about. And then if you think about the teachings of John the Baptist, it only makes it a little more uncomfortable. Now, I want to disclaimer here. We're going to be now here in Luke chapter 3. But the first verse I want to read is verse 18 for very appropriate reasons. Look what verse 18 says. So with many other exhortations, he preached, what did he preach? Come on, nice and loud. What did he preach? Good news to the people. Let's do it like we're all together. What did he preach? Good news. That means everything John the Baptist preached is what? Good news. That's important to remember because it is not going to sound like it. It is not going to sound like a sermon where someone's coming in with good news. Good news. What? I found a bag of cash in your backyard. Yes. It ain't going to come off that way. It's not going to come off that way at all. And yet it is. And hopefully we'll be able to see this. So let's look at it. We're going to pick up at verse 2. During the high reign of Anna, excuse me, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went to all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now this is a prophecy from Isaiah, from the book of Isaiah that we're going to start with. We're not going to get to John's sermon until a couple of verses down till verse 7. So this first part is a prophecy from Isaiah that said, look, John the Baptist will be the prophet that prepares the way for God. He's the guy who becomes the, the forerunner for Jesus. He comes through, if you will, trumpets blaring, saying, something's coming, something's coming, get ready, something's coming. And then Jesus comes. So John the Baptist's sermons are intended to prepare people for what Jesus is about to do. Does that make sense? Everybody say amen if you're with me. Okay, so in this prophecy, and you can look this up in the book of Isaiah on your own, the prophecy in verse 4 gives John the Baptist's role. John the Baptist will be the forerunner of Jesus. Now, verse 5 tells us what Jesus is going to do. So if John is coming through and preparing the way, it would make sense that what John is doing is laying a foundation for the work that Jesus is about to do coming. So what is Jesus going to do? Verse 5. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. That's what Jesus is going to do. Now, those of you that moved from like Ohio because you hate flat ground, and now you're thinking heaven's going to be lame, I wanted mountains, that's not what it means when it says he's going to flatten places out. This is like a poem. This is like a song, the way that this is being written. So what is it that he's saying? Let's look at them one at a time. The first thing is, when Jesus comes, every valley shall be filled. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is going to take the low places of our life, and he's going to lift them up into the light that we can be healed. It means the deep, broken, sinful, dark places of our heart. Jesus is going to lift that up. It means the sadness it means the depression, it means the fears, 
It means the wickedness. It means the hurt. It means the pain. Jesus is coming to lift those things up out of dark, deep valleys, lift them up into light that they might be healed. And that, my friends, is what? Good news, right? Isn't that good news? That Jesus isn't going, hey, fill up that valley. That he's not saying, fix this, fix this, fix this. But that Christ is coming for the very purpose of lifting us up. That is an unbelievable truth. That is good news. Then it says, every mountain and hill shall be made low. When Jesus comes, every mountain and hill shall be made low. What does that mean? It means while Jesus is lifting up the broken parts, he's also tearing down the self-righteous parts. It means, hey, all those things that we look at about ourselves where we go, this is why I'm awesome. This is why I'm spiritual. Some of us have longer lists than others. Don't laugh, but this is true. Now, think about the context, though. Who's he talking to? He's in Jordan, or the Jordan area. He's in that area. He's, he's in Israel. He's talking to Jewish people. God's chosen people who for their whole lives do what? Obey God's law. Who believe their whole purpose in life, that the reason that they're God's chosen people, we are, we are God's chosen child and we obey the law, so we are nailing it. And he says that is going to be blown away when the kingdom of God comes. All that self-righteousness, all that self-sufficiency, all that self-exaltation, which is fake, whether you realize it or not, is going to be brought low. I'm going to lift up the broken. I'm going to humble the exalted. Then he goes on, the crooked shall become straight. Man, just, have you ever, actually, let me just change this. Guys, I know you've done this. You ever lied when you didn't even need to lie? for no reason whatsoever. Like, I'm not talking about the lie to stay out of trouble. I'm talking about the lie that had no purpose, no meaning, and it's after you're saying it, you're like, why didn't I even do that? I was just dumb. You know, like, your wife asks you a question about something, and that innate uh, belief that we need to know everything and be the man, and we start answering a question, and about two sentences into the question, we realize, where am I going with this? Because I do not know the answer to this question, but we just run with it anyway. We're like, oh, well, I'm committed. Let's go. Like that kind of stuff, that kind of natural things that we just wrestle with and we go, did I just do that again? He's going to fix. And then finally, the last thing is this, the rough places shall become level ways, smoothed out. He's, he's not just here to humble. He's not just here to, to rid us of some wickedness and leave a void, but he's here to polish He's here to smooth out. He's here to protect. He's here to build. He's here to exalt us and perfect us that we might glorify God. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to lift the low, to humble the exalted, to straighten the crooked, to polish and fix and refine those who are his. This is what Jesus is going to do. And that, my friend, is good news. It's good news. So John the Baptist, his role is to prepare for that. So his preaching should kind of reflect some of that. So here's John the Baptist, our first story in Luke. Luke's writing this so that this one guy is going to understand the truth of all these things that's going to happen. And so here's the sermon, 
first sermon that we have recorded of John the Baptist preaching about Jesus, preparing the way for the Lord. And John the Baptist is, remember, preaching to who? Jewish people. And look what happens. This is hysterical. Verse 7. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Now look, if you're looking to start a church and build a congregation, probably don't want to start out with this. This is a terrible insult. Like, I don't even know that there's an equivalent. Like, I tried to think of what would be a modern equivalent, like telling an American, like, you ISIS soldier. But that's not even close because the, the, the sphere of influence that they relate to being called a serpent's not even close. Remember, Jewish people follow God's law, believe in the creation account. Let me ask you something. Can you think of a place where a snake might get a bad vibe in their reading and studying? Who do they blame for all of it? The serpent came in Genesis 3 and tempts Eve. All the failures, all the sin, all the difficulty, all the valleys, all the things in life that are out of whack, that are ruined, that they are waiting for the Messiah to come and restore shalom. The reason shalom and peace has been broken is because a snake showed up and John the Baptist just started the first sermon preparing the way for Jesus saying, all right, you bunch of snakes. I mean, you have to understand, the Jewish people didn't even have a language distinction between a poisonous snake and a non-poisonous snake. There's no like, oh, that one's okay, which, by the way, I know some of you guys do that too, right? Only good snake's a dead snake. Like, I know, a lot of you guys do the same thing. But that's the way they looked at it. Their classification was, they're all deadly. Guess why? And John the Baptist shows up. Listen up, you bunch of snakes. Pay attention. Not a good way. Not seeker-sensitive, John the Baptist. Remember, though, it's good news that he's going to preach. And he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So here's what he's saying. He was like, you know why you're here? God's warning you. He's invoking something of a, a supernatural deal that's actually taking place. I mean, think about it. Again, Jewish people are used to worshiping at synagogue and in the temple. Herod's temple by, the, by that time, by the way, fancy. And studying under leaders who, who carried themselves in such a way and put off this aura of holiness to the people around them to such a degree they wouldn't even touch a commoner. They would hold their cloaks to themselves as they walked in so they didn't brush against anyone. That's where they went to worship. And now for some reason, I don't know if you've been to this area, the Jordan area there, it's to this day not exactly urban world. And at that day, it is full-blown wilderness, and gray crowds have gone out to hear this wild wilderness man who eats bugs and honey and is dressed in uh, leather animal skins. He's saying, hey, you didn't just happen out here. This isn't the hot show in town. You were drawn here because God brought you here to warn you something's coming. But it's good news. Doesn't sound like good news, but it's good news. Something's coming. So here's his warning, verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So here's what's going on here. A lot of Jewish people at this time, 
and Jewish religious leaders actually lived in such a way, they might not even come out and say it, but lived in such a way it was as if they had God uh, boxed in. They had him in a corner. And the reason is because the Bible says that God was going to use the people of Israel to bless, heal, and repair the rest of the world. That he had promised that, and God can't go back on his promises, so he's not going to wipe us out. We're fine. So when it comes to the commands of God and all the things that they were supposed to do, they were just sort of mailing it in. And they were believing, they're leaning on the fact that we are Abraham's children, the ones who in Genesis 12, God promised blessings going to come through us. That's us. So he can't wipe us out. And look, oh, he favors us. And so instead of just understanding the reality that they had received God's favor, they thought we're God's favorite. And they were just coasting on that. Never a great idea. I, I, it's basketball season is about to start here. Exhibition game's already going. And I need basketball season to start because my football teams are all garbage now. And, um, and, and as you guys know, maybe you've heard this. I, I might have mentioned it once or twice. I kind of like the North Carolina Tar Heels, where I came from. And um, because so does Jesus. And um, there's a thing that the head coach does that I love. There's a thing the head coach does once in a while that I love. There's, there's been several times you'll see it in games once in a while where if he feels that the players out there on the court are just sort of mailing it in, he's not having it. And he'll say, look, guys, teams aren't going to come into this arena and just surrender because our shirts say North Carolina and there's six championship banners on the rafters. I want to see some effort. I want to see some work. We got those banners because we work. And if you're mailing it in thinking, look who I am and I'm this coddled athletic star that's just been pampered and told how great I am forever and ever and ever, if you think that's going to get you somewhere, no. And so if he sees that happening on the court, he'll do a mass substitution. He'll pull the five lowest dudes off his bench and he'll send them in and it doesn't matter how big the game is. And there's something of that same sort of approach that's going on within the Jewish people. They're like, we're God's favorite. The Messiah's coming. He's not going to wipe us out. We're his family. He picked us. And so now look, they are obeying. They, they are obeying the law, but in an external way. It's, it's like they're just polishing off the uniform to say, see whose team I am? So they're going to sacrifice they're going to the ceremonies, they're observing the Sabbath, they're doing all those external things, but Jesus is going to come on the scene later and say, man, your hearts are far from me. Oh, you keep the law, you're doing all this, you're doing all these different things, but you're forgetting the most important one. I mean, the Shema itself, what does it say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They're, 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 your hearts are far from you. You don't love me. You love the blessings. You love the prestige. You love all of that, and you love showing everybody else how spiritual you are, but your heart, not connected at all. And he's saying to them, look, if you think you're good with God simply because you're a descendant of Abraham, let me just tell you, he can raise up more kids out of these stones. He does not need you like that. And as we know from the New Covenant, what does the Bible tell us? That he takes hearts of stone and turns them to hearts of flesh. And that's how the Gentiles are even brought into God's covenant community in the first place. So he's telling these guys, don't mail it in. And in fact, he says it by saying, hey, um, you heritage, if you will, tree of God's lineage. We have the family tree kind of idea, if you will. You guys think that you're safe because you're God's children? There's a lumberjack walking up. And he's warming up the axe. And he's from Oregon, so he's legit. <laughs> this is what he's telling him. Something's coming. A lumberjack. That's what's coming. 
And so they respond appropriately. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? That's a great question, by the way. When you, when you have just been told, hey, your position before God, everything you're doing right now and everything you're standing on right now is completely inadequate. Good question to ask is, then what do I do? Like, then what do we do? Now, his answer is going to seem weird. Because it would seem as if he's saying, all those things you're doing to make God love you, totally inadequate. Well, what do we do? Here's a list of all the things you need to do for God to love you. What? Like, it, it seems like he said, your list is bad. Here's a different list. That's not what's actually happening here. In the New Testament, and this is why this is really important for us in this context. In the New Testament, the church is told, in other words, the people of the church are told over and over and over using two different kind of languages to do this, or two different kinds of words. The first is, hey, church, make sure you're bearing fruit. Make sure you're bearing fruit. Now, that's what Jesus used, if you remember, in the parable of the sower. What was the thing that separated those who were real in category D, if you will, from the rest? It was what? Fruit. It was the fruit that came up down the end. The fruit now is not what made them good. The soil was good already. The fruit is what displayed and proved that the soil was good. Does that make sense? And then the other one is this, self-examination. Paul actually says that no man should neglect the painful, painful work of self-examination. He says it's hard. Like looking at ourselves, looking into our soul, looking into our motives, questioning those things, it's painful. It's hard. It's difficult. Hebrews actually says we should be nervous, or in other words, we should be afraid if we are not sure that we have entered into the rest of God. Throughout the New Testament, examine yourselves. Make sure. Test your calling. All of these things happen over and over. So the list that John the Baptist is about to give is not about giving these guys a list of things that, now if you go do this, you're good. What he's doing is he's saying, hey, something's coming, you better investigate your life. Because if you're just leaning back on who I am and my heritage and my own self-righteousness, you're in trouble. And so here's some things you better start thinking of. He's talking about fruit that bears the reality of actual repentance. Not the kind of repentance that happens in a crowd of 20,000, but then when the temperature gets turned up because Jesus has been arrested, you walk away and then there's only 120 left. He's talking about genuine repentance, and he's, call, he's calling them to understand and be awakened to what's going on, which is painful, but he's saying it's what? Good news. Yeah, you see, you're getting less and less enthusiastic about that, which I think they did too. So what do we do? Verse 11, he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. For the person, now think about this, the gospel itself, especially to the Jewish people, but to religious people in general, is to stand before God and think that all the different things you've done in life is what's going to justify you before God and make you okay is wrong. The only thing that solidifies our standing before God are the people who have thrown themselves on the grace and mercy of of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with what you've done. It is an abandonment of all the things that you've done and clinging only to Jesus Christ and his righteousness as your way of salvation. This is what he's saying. And he's saying, for those who have done that, 
someone who has experienced the mercy of Jesus Christ in their life and has repented and has really transformed, you don't walk out into the cold. Those people don't walk out of the cold, see someone shivering and go, well, praise God, I have three jackets and I think I got two I can't even find right now. God is good to me. That's not what you do. People who have been transformed by the grace and mercy of God, they know what it's like to be in need because they understand where their own need was and they know what it's like to receive mercy when they were unable to fill that need. And so they see someone shivering in the cold and they are moved with compassion because of the mercy of Christ in their life to serve that compassion. They don't just sit back and go, man, praise God, he didn't make us like that. Someone who has been transformed by the mercy of Jesus Christ does not see someone who's hungry and go, man, praise God, I'm fed. I got pantry. I have, a, I have a whole closet. It's like a mini room, bigger than most of the rooms in the world that is just, just for my, I have a room for my food. And that's not even counting the refrigerator. Praise God. People who have been transformed by the grace and mercy of God, when they see people hungry, understand mercy and provision and want to do it. Now listen, we don't sit around and beat ourselves up and feel guilty because God has given us things. God gives good gifts to his children because he wants us to enjoy them. Amen? And in America, it's important to know. Like, it's not about, oh, give everything away. That's not the idea. The idea is the things God has given us find their truest fulfillment and our greatest joy when they're served in him and in his purposes. And the gifts are not means to an end. If you got a gift, that's not the end of the path. The gifts that we've been given have been given us that we might bless others. That was the call for the nation of Israel all along. God is going to bless you, as he says this to Abraham in Genesis 12, and then what? Through you, all the world will be blessed. You're just the delivery people in a lot of ways. This is the call of God. And so people that are part of God's family, true sons of Abraham, as he might say, when they see that, man, they're going to minister to the needs. They're going to reach out and they're going to serve other people. These, this will be the natural outworking of a heart that has been changed by Jesus Christ. Jesus is merciful, so we become merciful. Jesus set prestige aside, so we set prestige aside. And he elaborates more on this. Look at verse, move forward to verse 12. Tax collectors came to him to be baptized and said, Teacher, what do we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. And soldiers asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threat or false accusation, and be content with your wages. He says to these guys, Hey, look, you guys are in positions of power and influence, but listen, the power that you have, the influence you have, is not ultimately for just for your own benefit. It's not all about you. You've been put in positions of power that you might serve the kingdom of God by ministering to and blessing other people in the same way God has blessed you. It's really interesting. To the common man, he says, give. To the powerful man, he says, stop taking. And these are natural outworkings of a heart that's been affected by the gospel. And then, for our purposes, skip, if you would, to verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod has done, 
added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So there's a little history to do here, super, super quickly. Other gospel accounts um, do a, a more thorough job of talking through the, the intricacies of this. But here's the deal. Herod is a king. He's a puppet king, if you will, over the area. And he is a total hedonist. He is a, um, um, he's a sexual deviant. He is someone who lives for nothing but his own pleasure. And he is actually involved in an illicit affair and at the time gets so disgusted with all this different stuff that's going on that, um, that he's in an incestuous affair, all, affair already. And then, then he has this whole party where all of his buddies come and they all get drunk. And he's like, man, we need some entertainment. What are we going to do? I know. Get my daughter-in-law. Let's have her, or my stepdaughter, I'm sorry, have my stepdaughter come in here. And they bring her up and have her dance naked for everybody else's entertainment. And he gets so caught up in that, that then he says to this girl, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. So she runs and checks with mom. Mom's sick and tired of John the Baptist. Why? Because John's been preaching about this. John's been talking about, hey, that's wrong. Jesus is coming. This is the kind of stuff he's coming to fix. He's pointing at these things all along. And she's had it. So she says to the daughter, go tell him that we want John the Baptist's head on a platter. So she does, and he does. And so you see, even in this account right here, we see two different things. We see where money can be an indicator that the Bible constantly points to as evidence of what's going on inside our heart. We see power and pride, which the Bible points to as a place where we can find evidence of what's going on in our heart. And we see the issue of sex. I mean, that leads to some dark, places. And it, on the surface, it would seem like money, power, and then sex would seem different. They're exactly the same. They're exactly the same. Because the end result in all of them is, you all exist for my pleasure and benefit. All of you. It's all about me. I live for me. I don't live to serve others. They live to serve me. So if I want this, if I want that, I'm not worried about the bottom line. I don't need to pay my employees a whole lot because the, the total uh, uh, objective, the whole purpose of all my employees is to just make a lot of money for me. So I'm not so worried about them. I'm not worried about the needs over here. I'm not worried about her and how she feels just as long as I get pleasure from it. It's the same kind of self-worship, self-exaltation that Jesus came to deal with. And it exposes what's going on in our heart. If the Spirit of God, think about this, Jesus, who set his prestige aside, who set his power aside, who set his money aside, like God is wealthy. I don't know if you guys know this. The Bible says streets of gold, right? Like God has everything he needs and he sets all those things aside. Why? To become a humble, itinerant carpenter slash rabbi. Why? Why would he do that? Because even he didn't look at that as like, well, Jeff blew up, but I don't really care. No, he says, no, Jeff is in need of a savior. And so I'm going to move towards that need. I'm going to serve and do that. He came to be served or to serve, not be served. And that's what Christ did. And that's what it means to be a Christian, to follow the example of Jesus, to do that. To put others ahead of ourselves. To die to self, the Bible says. But also to die to the self-righteousness. And to cling solely and completely to Jesus. Now verse 15 says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, 
saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's some real interesting history in this. The Jewish people, from the days that they had been slaves, one of the things that Jewish people said they will never, ever, ever do is reach down and deal with someone else's feet or sandals because that's what slaves do. And we've been delivered. We are God's chosen people. We are not slaves. We don't have anything to do with the feet of someone else's sandals. And then the king comes. And at the Last Supper, in that upper room, what does Jesus do? He robes himself or disrobes himself as a slave, and he stoops down at each of the disciples and begins what? Take off their sandals and starts washing their feet. He puts his prestige aside, he puts his dignity aside, he puts his power aside, he puts his pride aside, and he goes and does the most base thing they could think of for the sake of them. And then when he's done, John 13 tells us, he looks at the disciples and says, now what I have just done for you, go and do likewise. This is what it means and what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. So if the Spirit of God comes into the heart of a man, it would make sense that the fruit that that Spirit begins to produce in your life is going to look like that, right? And so what John the Baptist is calling them to do and what the whole New Testament over and over calls us to do is to think about this. Do some fruit inspection. He is loving. He is good. He is kind. But what does it also say about him? Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat in his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Listen, Jesus is good and kind and loving, but he's coming, and this is serious, and you've got to deal with this. The wheat, if you will, the fruit, is going to go over here with him. The fire is going to burn. I'm sorry that makes you uncomfortable, but this is important. You cannot mess around with this. Now remember, church, who's he preaching to? He's not talking to a couple of college kids in the back of an El Camino smoking weed listening to Macklemore. He's talking to the most religious people that have ever existed. He's talking to people who had a code of morality the world has never even seen before. And he's saying, you're not right. You've got this backwards. You're doing all these things thinking that you're nailing it and you've missed the most important part. Your heart is far from God. I don't care about all the sacrifice. I don't care about all those churchy things that you do if I don't have your heart. And this is what a heart looks like who I have. This is what he's calling us to. And then verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Now, I have a minute and 45 seconds to say this. Why is this good news? Because let's be honest, it doesn't sound like good news. Like, good news, what? I found a sack of money in your backyard. That's good news, right? Good news, what? You're blowing it. Um, okay. Good news, What? Everything you're holding on to is wholly inadequate. Why is that good news? Well, there's, there's three things. First of all, so we can know. Like, it's good to know, right? Some people don't want to go to the doctor because they'd rather just not know. But if there's something wrong, you want to know. And you want to know while there's time. And so the Word gives us a way to know. 
it is a gracious thing to know and to be able to prepare. And then if we repent, we're falling, okay, okay, and then we blow it again, but, but we can know. So we throw ourselves back on the mercy of God again, knowing that he's going to forgive us, that he's able and just to do so. And then the second thing, the reason that this is good news is because, and this is the part we mess up, he's calling us to joy. Remember that. I mean, a lot of people before that last night at youth camp are like, I know I need to follow Jesus, but man, it just seems like if I get serious about religion and faith and start following God, life's going to get boring because everything I like, God hates. And God's music is bad, God's people are boring, God, you know, God's movies are cheesy, all that kind of stuff. <sighs> I guess that's going to be my life. No, that is such a lie. That's the lie the original snake told in the Garden of Eden. They had joy unspeakable and perfection. There was one tree they couldn't eat from. And what does Satan come and do? God's holding out on you guys. Because he knows the good stuff's right there. And so he's not sharing the good stuff with you. Yep, he doesn't love you. And now we know the fallout of all that. It wasn't that he was holding out on us. He was, he was for our good and for our joy. And that's the absolute truth. Think about it. God is not glorified. If, if we, the church, are to be the light of the world, how does God get any kind of glory? How does the attraction of God grow in the world out there if the church becomes just a group of boring, grumpy, mopey, uninspired people? That doesn't make God look good at all. I was, up, I was on vacation last week, and I was out in this place way out, speaking of wilderness, out in eastern Oregon where phones didn't used to work. Now they are. So this whole wilderness concept we're losing. But anyway, I'm out there with some guys that are kind of in the fly fishing world, fly fishing industry, some people that run different companies and some guides and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, by night we're sitting around the campfire and, and conversation starts to go. Some guys we know better than others. Some guys we don't know at all. And so people are talking about their lives and stuff. And a couple of guys in a row who I didn't know super well were talking about the fact that their phones didn't work because they were on, I probably shouldn't say the company, um, BB&T. And so their phone didn't work. And they were just going on and on about how awesome it was that their wife can't reach them. They're like, just like, oh man, I'm glad the old lady can't get a hold of me right now. I have a couple of days of freedom. Now, how does that make his marriage look? And the next guy, same thing, man. Yeah, I don't get to fish as much as I used to, um, you know, but I, I do what I can because man, a, a man's got to have it, you know, all these different kinds of things. And then it, the next guy comes up who is Alex, who's a friend of mine, runs this one company. And he, I was so happy to hear him say this. He just goes, guys, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I kind of like my wife. Now, if you're looking at that unfold, which of the three do you want to be? I mean, what girl grows up dying for a husband who, when asked, what's your marriage like, says, it's hard. It's real hard. I'm not going to lie, she's killing me. I don't think it's going to get any better. Looking at her mom, I think it's going to get worse. <laughs> but I'm committed. And I'll endure because it's the right thing to do. Who wants that is not in any Disney movie? That's not. God is calling us to joy. Sexual deviancy, God invented sex. Money, God's really wealthy. Food, possessions, all those things. The reality is God knows we find our best and greatest joy when we are in 
him. And everything else is a lie, trying to wreck us, trying to pull us away, trying to lead us to death, just like the very first snake that ever happened. And will we be snakes that follow the snake, or will we be those who follow Christ and trust that he is for our greater joy? Christian means little Christ. Will we be that? So the question then is, which one are you? Oh, Jeff, this is stupid. You guys are so uppity and uptight about all these kind of things, and nobody really cares, and oh, this is just dumb. I don't, why, I don't know why I'm worried about that. And hurry up, the football game's on. Your clock back there says zero. You're supposed to be done now. Category one, a path that never had a shot. Well, I hear what you're saying here, Jeff, and, and I, you know, I'll think about this. I'm going to chew on this. I'm going to read on this a little bit. I've got a lot of things going on right now, so I've got I to chew on it and think about it, and I'll see how this stuff fits in. But, but you don't understand, Jeff. There's this going on and this going on, and I've got this and this and this. Okay, category two, category three. But to those who have ears to hear and hear, and your realization out of this is, I need help because I am messing it up. John the Baptist is right. The things that I'm leaning on aren't working. I'm following things I shouldn't follow, and I don't even know how to fix this at this point. I don't know what to do. The good news is this. Right here in verse 21, Jesus comes and is baptized. The Spirit of God comes upon Jesus and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and the ministry of Jesus Christ begins at this point. And from this point on, I mean sinless before that as well, we see the life of Christ where he's going to go and do all the things you keep failing at. He's going to succeed and keep the law in all the places that you can't. He's going to do all of these things perfectly. Not to go, see, you could have done it, but to do it for us. Then he's going to go to the cross. And on the cross, the guilt and shame of all of our failures is going to go on his shoulders so that he can exchange those things. And so that he can say, Jeff, stop holding to your cheesy righteousness that you think is going to get you somewhere and let go of those things in the valleys that are killing you and cling to me. And we are then looked at by God as if we lived that perfect life he did. And he goes to the cross and carries the punishment for the things that we should have done wrong. But then raises from the grave, defeats sin and death and all of that stuff. And now, by faith and genuine repentance, we can enter in, not just to the kingdom of God, but to the family. We become joint heirs. You go, if I follow Jesus, I'm not going to have anything. If you follow Jesus, you'll have everything. I'm pretty sure Jesus isn't in need. And he says, all that's mine is yours. He's calling us to joy. So do the hard work of self-examination. Do the painful work of self-examination. Examine your life for fruit and praise God for the grace that his spirit will speak to us and show us these things while there's time. That years from now or on that day, our fruit is booming and we are proven to be category four. Amen? Let me pray for you. Will you bow your heads and do that right now? Lord, where am I? Where are we, God? Where is our heart? Who is our king? What is our Lord? Lord, if there are areas of our heart, areas of our soul, mind, that have drifted from you, will you show it to us? 
Show us the dark valleys. Show us the high self-righteousness. Show us things we're clinging, clinging to that aren't you. But then, Lord, show us your son. Show us the one in whom you are well pleased. Show us, Lord, the one who lived perfectly for us. Show us, Lord, the one who died on the cross on behalf of us, who carried our death, who carried our pain, who carried our guilt. Show us, Lord, the one who was our champion, our conqueror, because he defeated sin and death and rose from the grave. Show us, Lord, the one who has ascended into heaven, who is now granting life to those who will believe. God, by your Spirit, grant us repentance. And may the same Spirit that filled you, that came upon you for the ministry that we see, may that same Spirit fill us anew again that we might, Lord, walk in truth. Protect us from the enemy that wants to whisper into our ear that it's not worth it, that it'll cost too much, or that we won't be able to. And help us to hear your truth that you're calling us to joy. And then, Lord, when we fall and we will, may we run to you faster than we did before. All of life is repentance. May we repent again and return to you. And I pray, God, for everyone in this room that at the end of it all, there would be fruit that proves we were yours. And we pray for that day when all those things are taken from us forever and we stand before you and we hear the unbelievable words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, for those that are in this room that have never made a decision to follow you, I pray, God, that you would work in their hearts and draw them to you. I pray they would know, just as the people in this sermon hearing John know, that they're not here just randomly, that, Lord, you have called them, that you're warning them of something to come, but you're also wooing them and calling them towards your love. And I pray, God, that the end result of all of this would be that you, Jesus, are lifted up and magnified, that your gospel is spread among the earth. Now, you, may you bless your people with this good news, and may this word today find fertile soil in our hearts and produce fruit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You can stand. <clears throat> God bless you guys. May the Lord love and keep you. May you trust in him. Start reading ahead in Luke. If you haven't been reading through Luke a little bit yet, start digging through and reading through some of these stories. I even challenge you, read big picture stuff. Read through, not just focusing on the macro. Start experiencing and seeing the work and ministry and love of Jesus Christ. And then let's just pray, Lord, what will you have for us? How will we be like Christ in the world around us? Amen? I love you guys. God bless. <laughs>